faith is a word um, that is generally compartmentalized to like spiritual matters. Like it's a, it's a spiritual word. We don't really often talk about faith and other things. Um, because of that, sometimes we can even compartmentalize uh, the importance of that word or even what that word might mean. Uh, so we're going to talk about what faith means. And uh, if you have questions as we go, I'm going to try and answer other questions throughout this, uh, throughout the message, and we'll we have a Q&A session afterwards. But if you have any questions as we go, you can go to that website. It's an, an, an anonymous way to um, uh, ask questions, and I won't know who it is. And so you can either make fun of me or ask actual questions. It's all good. Um, now, here we may not talk about faith often, but we do talk about trust. We trust in those who love us, and when they betray that trust, we feel it. We trust that the government is going to follow the rules that they set themselves, and when they don't follow those rules, we really don't like it. We trust that our jobs are going to have enough to meet our needs that week. We trust that Netflix, the amount that we pay to Netflix, will be enough to entertain us when, whenever we kind of swipe through for whatever thing we might want to watch. We trust in things all the time, from what you're sitting on right now to the bigger things in life. The bigger the stakes, though, the bigger the trust needed. You don't have to think really that hard about sitting down because you're in a chair and it's worked for you every other time you sat down. It's not like, can I trust gravity will keep me here? Like, yeah, you don't even really have to think about it. But deciding on a career, getting married, buying a house, like all these require high levels of belief and trust. And when we talk about ultimate things like, like believing in a God or in the God of the Bible, well, the stakes are really high. Sometimes when talking about trust in God, people might use the term of like a, like a blind leap or like a leap of faith or blind faith, and that is just not a very Christian idea. That idea actually comes from more from like existential philosophy than it does anything in the Bible or Christianity. Um, because to basically what like a leap of faith or blind faith is supposed to be, that in order to believe in something so big and so powerful like a God, you have to kind of like, you know, tone down the rational side of your brain a bit in order for that to be true. But that's not Christianity. Christianity requires our brains as well as our hearts, as well as belief. Uh, so Christian faith does require us to think about things. So we're going to look about that as one aspect of faith. But it's kind of like the overall theme is kind of like a child that's jumping into their parents' arms. Like a child that's leaping into their parents' arms, they have a faith. It's not blind faith. They have a faith. They, they, don't, may, they may not know like velocity and their weight and the, if I jump here and uh, will my parents' arms be able to catch them? And some kids do seem to have a complete death wish and don't seem to know what's going on. And it might seem like bl blind faith, but they have a trust that that parent is going to catch them. The reason why the kid jumps is because mom or dad or whoever, I, I trust in that person. And that's not blind faith as much as it's faith in a person. And that's a lot of what, like, of what Christian faith is about. I think it could be easy when talking about faith to get hung up on talking about our faith and uh, is it strong or, or is it weak and how are we feeling one day to the next? I mean, it, it all changes how we feel all the time. And if we live life on those terms of how we feel based on how we woke up in the morning, like we're just never really going to be rooted in something deep. Some days... If you have faith, it might feel like you have lots of it. Some days, if you have faith, it might feel like you don't have very much. But the key in all of this is not so much to look at our faith, but to look at what we have our faith in, the object of our faith. Because if we just look to our faith, that's just not really going to get us very far. But it's about what we have our faith in that really matters. So saying you have faith doesn't really tell me anything unless you tell me what you have faith in. That's the thing that matters. What do you trust in? Remember, faith is trust. What do you trust in for, say, like a good life now? 
Well, you might trust in your job. Everybody does, if you have one. You might trust in your home. If you have a home, you might trust in your friends if you have those things. And you can trust in that to give you a good life. What do you trust in when life gets messy and chaotic? What about when those things that you had trusted become messy and chaotic themselves, like a partner, like your kids, like your families, all those kinds of things? What do you trust in for a good life in the future? What about like when you die? How is your faith going to help you in all these kind of different kinds of circumstances? Here's the, uh, the sentence we're going to be looking at today. Christian faith is trust in the person of Jesus who invites us into his story. Not halfway, but fully. We're going to talk about three things, the head, the hands, and the heart. What we know, what we feel, and what we do. Christian faith is trust in the person of Jesus who invites us fully into his story. So first, let's talk about the head, what we know. Not, uh, so faith is knowledge. It's not first knowledge about a system. It's knowledge about a person. It's like, when, if, if you get married, you learn other people's systems whether you want to or not. And sometimes you're like, I can't believe you eat food that way, or I can't believe you leave the dishes to be clean until later. All the kind of things are like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this person lives this way. And all of a sudden you have to live with that person. But you don't marry them because of their morning routine. You marry them because you love them. And you sort out how to work that morning routine out, or maybe don't, and you just kind of moan, which is fine too. But you marry them because you love them. And that's what's worth getting together. Romans uh, 10, 14 says, is talking about people who don't have faith. How are they going to have faith? Paul says, how then can they, the people who don't have faith yet, call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? See, Paul's issue wasn't about people having faith in general. Paul's issue was about the importance of people having faith in Jesus and the one, the person. So it requires a belief. But then also faith is believing that that knowledge is actually true. It's not just a knowledge to have, but it's a knowledge that that actual, that's actually true. James 2.19 says, you believe there's one God. He's talking to this church. Good. Even the demons believe that. Great. Great job, everybody. You believe there's a God? Good. You got your theology right? Great. Demons, same way. Like, they believe the same kind of thing. Facts about God is different than knowing who God is. There's different things. There's this theologian, um, John Frame, he wrote this, faith is not only knowing what God's revelation says, it's also believing that that revelation is true. And it's more than kind of looking up the Wikipedia entry and then kind of going about your day. It's like any relationship, really. Knowledge and belief is involved, uh, but knowledge and belief about a person first. There is a system. I'm not saying there's no system, but it's faith in a person first. And that also means that faith isn't always going to equal complete certainty in all situations. I think sometimes we might view faith as a level of certainty. And of course, the certainty does come with faith. But faith isn't always going to be equal to complete certainty in all situations. Uh, here's an example. Recently, a friend of mine was talking about a friend that he had. And he knew this friend really well. He knew this friend for a really long time. He was uncertain of her response of something he was going to ask her. He expected something negative but instead she responded positively. So he was uncertain about her response, but he was certain in her character. He was certain who she was. He was certain in the friendship that they had between each other. And that meant he was able to proceed even in the uncertain response he might get from that person. So you can be friends with someone for decades, and they can still surprise you. You won't always know exactly how people are going to act in all situations, but you will know that person, and there's a certainty that comes from that. You might be uncertain about that other person's thoughts, their ideas, their, their system of like doing life, 
but you move forward together because you're certain about a person. See, blind faith is not a blind leap without knowledge, but it also doesn't require comprehensive knowledge on all kinds of levels. Does that make sense? A certainty thing. So it's certainty and a person which can leave uncertainty in what that person might think or say. Now, sometimes we want certainty about facts, and you won't always get it. But faith comes from certainty about a person. Again, it's that idea of a child jumping into their parents' arms because the child knows the parent. The child maybe doesn't even think about what's certain or uncertain. They just know, if I fall, I'll get caught. See, this thing, this Bible actually contains all you need to know about God. It's actually in here. It's very convenient. He's left us a little book. You can actually read the words, like with your eyeballs. Read it. You can read it. It makes sense. You can actually know who God is. And this is certainty about a person. You'll, you'll learn about the system. Yeah, you'll learn about what Christianity as a belief system is like. But first, you're going to learn about a person. And sometimes that person's going to surprise you. Sometimes that person's going to say, hey, you should go to Bolivia, to this mining village in Bolivia. Sometimes this person's going to say, hey, you should leave America and come to the UK. That's a, maybe a much easier sell. I don't know. It was for us. Okay, so faith, there's, there's a knowledge thing. Um, and so let's go back to our, uh, the one sentence thing. Christian faith is trust in the person of Jesus who invites us into his story and not halfway. There's a fully invite here, a full invite, head, heart, and hands. So we talk about the head. Let's talk about the heart. What we know, but also what we feel. See, Boston got it right. It's more than a feeling, but it's also not less than a feeling. Feeling's involved. And maybe feeling is actually... Um, too shallow of a word. I was tempted to put this like theologically nerdy word up there, but now I'll just talk about it instead. Um, these kind of old dead theologians would often use this term affections to talk about the heart. Like these, these desires and emotions that are, uh, that are deeper and go beyond the kind of shallow emotions we might feel from day to day. But it's the things that move us, the things that really kind of get us up in the morning. For faith to be faith, there must be some kind of affection. Emotions will be different like across the board, but hearts are all affected when it comes to faith. What the Bible often talks about here is this churchy word. It's a biblical word, but it's a word we don't use outside the context of spiritual things. It's repentance. Repentance. Repentance is a neediness. It's a surrender. It's a turning from something, and you repent from that thing, and you turn towards this other thing altogether. It's a complete change, like a 180-degree kind of change. One of these examples in the Bible, in Acts, the very first kind of book where the Christian church is born. Peter, who's the leader of the church at the time, gives the first real sermon of this new Christian church, and people are captivated. They're not captivated first because of how he's speaking or even kind of the, the, um, the information that he's bringing. They're captivated about a person that Peter is talking about, who's this person called Jesus. And these people, their minds are being blown about the sermon, and they're like, oh, Peter, like, what should we do now? What, what do we want to do? The very first thing he says is to repent. Now that might sound like the thing that the crazy guy in the corner says with the sandwich board saying that end, the world is gonna end, like repent because the world is near. But what that just means is a change of heart and it requires our heart, an affection of our hearts that changes. Going one way, now going another. Trusting in one thing or one way, not trusting in something or, or someone different. See, those listening to Peter's sermon I was just talking about, they were living in one way and they heard about Jesus. They heard about that one that Paul is talking about, and they wanted to believe. They wanted to have faith. And so what did they do next? Peter asked them to make a commitment to not live in the same way they were before, but to have their hearts change in such a way that kind of changed them, even before they did anything, changed who they were. 
This requires a trust. Peter didn't tell them to believe they were saved or something like that. He told them to believe, to trust in Jesus. To, if you're going this way in order to like change this whole other way, requires a trust that this other thing's actually going to be better. That's a, that, that can be a lot, especially when you're talking about massive cosmic things like there being a God. Hebrews 10.22 uh, that Liz read says this, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. It's that first section of the verse, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Faith brings with itself, kind of pulls with itself, assurance. Assurance of what? Assurance that we are near to God, that we're close to him, like relationally close. It brings a sincerity to it. It brings a nearness to God. Without faith in God, we are far from him. With faith, what we get is to draw near to God himself. We get to draw near to God. That is relational closeness. So you can be sat next to anybody here and not actually be relationally close. You can be physically close, but not actually relationally close because your hearts aren't very close to each other. Um, now, it might be weird if I'm sat next to Christina for us to be you know, you know, relationally very far apart, even physically far apart, but that's very normal if it's someone you've not met before, if it's someone you don't really know that well. What God wants is for us not to just be like physically close, like be around churchy things, but for us to be relationally close to him. And friendship is an example of that kind of relational closeness, hearts that are close by. And if one person gives their heart in a relationship and the other person doesn't, it's not really a friendship. You've probably all experienced that. That's sad. It's kind of a letdown. You can say all the right things. You can be a really good religious person, but still have hearts far away. Jesus in Matthew 15 says, these people worship me with their lips. They do all the right things. They, they go to you know, the synagogue and all the days and make all the sacrifices and all the things. They worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, wherever you are with Jesus, all of us can say and, and do all the right things on the outside, but have our hearts far away from him. And this is because we lack Faith, we lack trust that God is actually good, that God actually loves to love us. See, Jesus in, in the Gospels has told us time and time again, he's not the one who's far off. We're the ones who have chosen to be far away from him. He has come near. He literally came to our world. He came near. He has given his heart, and in giving his heart, he sacrificed his heart so that you might draw near to him. And the Bible uses this word heart. Again, it's that word of affections. It's that deeper kind of desire, identity kind of thing of who we are. It's supposed to illustrate our innermost being, who we are, our hearts, our essence. Faith is giving ourselves to someone else. That could be a really scary thing. If that per- What's that person going to do with that heart? That's the innermost, my innermost being. Are they going to like squeeze it and like chuck it on the ground? Or are they going to care for it? Are they going to have it grow? See, that makes relationships, close relationships, whether it's with God or whoever, especially with God because he requires all of us, that makes relationships difficult, but that's also what makes relationships meaningful because you cannot be independent and also have meaning. You just can't. You have to give up some of that independence as you give your heart to someone else in order to get more meaning in this world. It means something beyond mere thoughts, beyond mere words. And the heart of giving your heart is repentance, is that change. And the only reason you turn from something to something is if you believe that that something is actually better. 
Like getting married, for example. Getting married means saying yes to one person, saying no to literally every other human being on the planet. That's exclusive. You're saying no to everyone else who's, who exists at this moment and who, I guess, could possibly exist in the future. Say, no, 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 I don't want to be with any of those people in the way that I want to be with this one single person. That is very exclusive. Do you really want to limit your options that way? Well, if you find the right person, yeah, you do. You really do. You actually really want to do that. You would rather be closer to that one person than leave options open. Now, nobody gets married because it looks good on paper. I'm sure people get married because it looks good on paper. Nobody ought to get married because it looks good on paper. And thankfully, in my case, Christina didn't marry me because you do not look great on paper. But that's not, that's not really great advice. Get married because you guys seem to like, you know, you, all the, the things like the, the lines all fit together. No, if that's the case, we would all have really sad marriages. No, somebody gets married because their hearts are in it. Their innermost being is in it. And they want to give their hearts to another person reciprocally. Reciprocally? In a reciprocal fashion. <laughs> but they don't go into it blindly. Do never go into a marriage blindly or any relationship blindly. They don't go into it blindly. They have a knowledge. Not necessarily about the systems or how things are going to work out or what is the future going to look like, how are we going to raise our kids or how are we going to make decisions. They go about it because the other person, they love the other person and they want to be with that other person. Now, I did get um, a, a few questions uh, related to like the experience of faith, like um, what does faith feel like kinds of questions. Uh, and there are varied experiences of faith as much as there are varied experiences of loving relationships. You can, two people describing a loving, loving relationship will be different as two other people. Uh, and then that's different than other kind of um, relationships like friendships versus marriages versus uh, good parent and daughter relationships, all those kind of things. The thing is, when you're actually in love with someone, you aren't in love with love, you're in love with that person. And so we can sometimes maybe get hung up with the idea of like, I need to get faith right, faith itself right. No, you don't, really don't need to actually worry about that so much as knowing the other person well. So if you're talking about faith in God, the thing that actually matters is knowing who God is and what he's done in our lives and what he says about us. Not so much of how are we doing all the time. The more we focus on how we're doing all the time, the less we actually see of him. I'm not saying we never talk about our own faith and things like that and how we're doing in our lives, but there ought to be a priority. The reason we have a faith is because of in this person. It's the object. It's not so much about the experience of faith as much as it is being in the relationship with the person of God. And those two, two things can be different. And there are many experiences of faith, as there are people who have it. You can be the happy, clappy type. You can be the super charismatic type that dance in the back of the room with ribbons. You can be super like reserved, like, you know, and like lifting a finger is like something going crazy. You could be the type that's like on your knees and praying. There are so many varied examples of how we demonstrate and live out our faith. And sadly, that can often divide churches because this is the church that worships like this. This is the church that worships like this. Instead of what it, sometimes what it does is divide us, what it ought to do, what it should do is bring us together. A church that worships in kind of varied kind of ways surely is a stronger church that worships in one kind of way only one time all, all the time. But I don't think really there ought to be so much worry and fret over what faith feels like um, because I, if we let even our experience of faith be about who Jesus is, all our worries and anxieties will probably fade because we're going to see who Jesus is and how he talks to us. So Christian faith, trust in the person who invites us into a story. We talked about uh, the head, we talked about the heart, now we're talking about the hands as what we do. Because faith is a practice. 
That's the thing of what we do. The first thing that Jesus asks of other people in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, in Matthew 4, the first thing he says is, come follow me. It's more, not so much of an invitation as much as it is a command. Uh, and he, he says, come to me, follow me, often in the Gospels. Not an invitation to come and follow my ideas. He doesn't say, hey, guys, I've, I have some really good ideas. I want you to follow that. You don't have to follow me. Just follow these, these rules first. No, you follow the person, and then you get the system afterwards. Following ideas come after following the person. But notice the action with the come and follow me. It's come and follow me. And in the Gospels, when Jesus is talking to the disciples, he literally means follow, like walking with your feet, kind of following me. They had to leave their jobs. They had to leave their families. And they followed Jesus. They actually had to have some kind of action. As much as we read Jesus calling people to follow him, the normal response is they left what they were doing and they followed him. In Matthew, as sometimes it says, they left everything and they followed him. They left their vocation. They left their previous identities. They left kind of the path they thought their life was on and now followed Jesus. This is what heart change, that repentance thing we talked about, that's what it can look like in action. An action is not an option when it comes to faith. It's a necessity. It's, it, if faith is a full, whole kind of human kind of thing, then the things that we do are as important as the things that we think. James, who wrote this uh, letter in the New Testament, speaking of Abraham, who's a father of the faith in the Old Testament, James, speaking of Abraham, says, you see that his faith, Abraham's faith, and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Abraham had faith and actions, and because they were working together, his faith was made complete. The, uh, the corollary of that is faith without actions is incomplete. That's actually what James says even in stronger words, a few verses down. Um, yes, we have it on here. Verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So you don't have faith if you aren't doing something with it. You say you have faith, but how does it actually change the way you live? Faith is a practice. It's a way of living. Thankfully, it's not a performance. It's a practice. A practice, no one's expecting to get practices right all the time. And performances, you only have them sporadically. A practice is a thing that's ongoing and is imperfect all the time. But you just kind of do it. You work at it. Nobody expects to be perfect in their practice time. And this is what uh, Martin Luther, one of the reformers uh, during the Reformation, kind of kicked off the Reformation, was getting at in one of his 95 theses. He says, our Lord and teacher, Jesus Christ, in saying repent, it wasn't like a one-time thing only, wanted the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance, kind of constantly repenting, constantly changing from this to that. An ongoing repentance, heart change, and this affects how we live. Now we're finally getting to the little section that, uh, that Liz read from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. So we've been answering these questions and looking at how, this, how Jesus' Sermon on the Mount has kind of interacted with them. I don't know if you caught that. I haven't really actually um, said that's actually what we've been doing, but that's kind of what we've been doing. And Jesus describes at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' like most famous sermon, he describes the life of faith. And he describes as one who hears his words and puts it into practice. And the way that Jesus talks about it is this leads to a good life and a resilient life. And surely resiliency is something we're all kind of very interested in right now. Uh, Matthew 7, 24 to 27, I'm going to put it up on here. It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. What, what Jesus is talking about is he wants us to have a life that is not going to get destroyed when chaos comes. He wants us to have a life that, that is, that's going to last for a long time. And not only that, he wants us to have a good life that's going to last for a long time. Jesus actually really cares about that for us. He wants us to have a foundation that's not going to get swept away. And that requires hearing his words and putting them into practice. Not just hearing and understanding and getting you know, the thoughts right, but it's also putting them into practice. If we hear and don't practice, we should expect to get swept away when things get chaotic. The way, of life, the way of Jesus is a life of faith. And that means our head, our heart, and our hands. It's a way of living. There's this thing that um, uh, some people in AA have a, a saying that's uh, uh, mood follows action. Often we think, if I feel it, then maybe I'll do the thing. Now, if that's true, no one would ever run ever in their lives because very few people, well, maybe some, the crazy psychos will. But the most, for us normal non-psychos, we would never run. We'd never put the trainers on, never get up early. Because I, don't, I, I run three times a week. I never feel it when, I, when I'm starting. How can I avoid this? It's always my thought. Um, <laughs> surely there's a way. I think the answer to avoiding it is eating less, and I'm not going to do that. So this is what I have to do. But when I'm done running, or even when I'm in the middle of it, I'm like, oh, you know, it's not so bad. It's all right. When I'm done, I actually feel really good. That's, I mean, serotonin and all those kind of things. Mood, yeah, right. The best part of running is right when you're done. Uh, <laughs> mood follows action. I, I, I hear this often with, um, when talking about, I really want to read the Bible, but sometimes I just get up and I don't feel it. I don't care if you don't feel it. Actually, I don't, that doesn't even matter. What matters is you just read it and you do it. And you may not feel it 90% of the time, but doing it every day will be worth even that small 10% of the time. You'll feel it more than that probably. But it's not going to come until after action happens. It's like if you were to get a job and act like you didn't have it, you're just not going to have that job for a long time. Or if you're like, oh, I don't really feel like going into work today. Okay, well, you won't go into work for that job ever again probably. And it's, or saying you care for someone. Or the Christian thing, I'll pray for you. You know, it's like, oh, I'm having a really difficult thing. Oh, I'll pray for you. You never get to pray for them. You're just saying that to make them stop talking. Hopefully, okay, that's a cynical pastor side of me. I know you guys are great. And you actually pray for each other, okay? That's great. Of course, now when I say that, you're like, wait a second. Is he actually going to pray for me? Uh, but it's like saying you care for someone uh, and then not actually doing anything about it, especially when they might need it. And people are just going to say, well, that's just empty words. They don't really believe it. It's the same thing when it comes to faith. Action has to be involved. Now, one thing we also need to say is that there is a context for all of this. Faith doesn't, doesn't come out of nowhere, just like Jesus didn't come out of nowhere. He doesn't pop up and, and like at a, in the middle of nowhere and like this revealing himself formally in a vacuum. Jesus came to earth in the midst of a story, not out of nowhere. Romans 10, uh, 17 says this about faith. It says, uh, faith comes from hearing the message. And by that, he's talking about the gospel, the Bible. We'll talk about that in a moment. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. See, faith comes through a message. And this message is heard through the word about Christ. And that is what Paul's talking about there is the Bible. He's not just talking about like a small little sliver of the Bible. He's not even talking about like the gospels themselves. What Paul's talking about is from the very first page in Genesis, the very last one in Revelation, Got what this big, huge, massive, overarching story that God is choosing for himself, a people to enjoy his glory, to enjoy his love, 
I'm able to receive his love. God loves to love his creation. He loves to love us. And he's, he has a people for himself who are going to receive his love and not only get it for ourselves, but be able to live in such a way, in a new way, because now we have these new hearts, that we can have other people enjoy his love as well. We get to reflect it back out to the world. Whether they respond or not, that's not up to us. What we get to do is love people in ways that we weren't able to before and shine it back. See, God created a good world. We broke that good world because we want to do our own thing. We want to be independent. Every single one of us do. And through that, though, we broke ourselves. We ended up broken because we broke this world. We wanted to be God ourselves. We thought there was an option to that, and so we took it. We wanted to be separate from him, and he let us have what we wanted. And there are consequences for that, that we're separate from God now and in the future if we stay that way. But he himself, God himself, entered into this broken story, into this broken world, and began its recreation process, like recultivating like ground that hasn't grown crops. And he's, he's renewing everything. He invites us to be a part of that renewal, recultivation process with him. And that is insane. And one day, we're going to enjoy it as fully new, fully new creations ourselves. So the fulcrum of this story, this whole huge overarching story, from the beginning of time to the kind of end of time, I guess, the hinge, the apex, it's all about Jesus. Two weeks ago, we talked about sex. We briefly touched on sexual identity, saying that Jesus requires us to wait to live that limits our sexual freedom. That's an offensive thing to say. But it doesn't matter what the Bible says about sexual ethics if you don't see Jesus as its center. Why should you care what Christians believe about sex if you don't believe in Jesus? It doesn't matter. You might find the Bible outdated and backwards with all sorts of errors and all sorts of issues that can never kind of be reconciled with itself. And that's really fine. It doesn't actually really matter if you don't see Jesus as its center. It doesn't matter what you think about the Bible, really. I mean, it's fine to have thoughts and opinions, but it actually really doesn't matter unless you see Jesus as its center. If Jesus is the center of this story, of the Bible, of our story, then we walk in a way that's different than otherwise. We walk in a way that he taught even when it's difficult, even when it's offensive, not only to other people but to us, even when it's, it, it feels near impossible and all the rest. But we walk it because we follow him. We don't follow our thoughts and feelings of how we're doing. We're following the person who's bringing us along. Not because we love a system. We might love the system, but that's not why we do it. We do it because of the person. We love him because he first loved us. And Jesus came into our world lives a perfect life. He took our sins on the cross. He put them to death. And as he was put to death, he rose again. And in his new life, he gives us new life. Now he's with the Father and he has sent the Spirit to us. And Jesus is telling us now, even right now as we're sitting here and even tomorrow as you're kind of daydreaming at work, even the day after as you you have the third cup of coffee in the morning just trying to get started, he's actually in the process of making all things new. And you are a part of that. This is the story of the gospel, and we call that good news for a reason, because it's really great news. Good is kind of too low of a bar. How in the world is that good news? Does that sound just like too um, theoretical? Well, really quickly, individually, three things this means for us. The very first thing that God promises through this message, through the gospel, is that we get a new status. We talked about the Hebrews 10.22 thing that um, Liz read. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings. The second half of that verse is this. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. That is past tense. Hearts sprinkled clean. New creations made clean. 
We get to become whole, formerly disintegrated people now get to be whole again. So God promises a rescue from our sin. No longer strangers to him, but actually part of his family. Part of his family. So he gives us um, a, new, a new status. God also promises a new heart. So though we are not perfect now, Christians never claim to be perfect, or if they do, they're not, they don't know anything about the Bible. Um, we don't, we are, we're not perfect now. Sin is still present, but doesn't have a power over us as it did before. So sin's power is done away with because now the Holy Spirit actually resides in us. And we live differently and want to live differently because, uh, because of it. Not just, it's not just so much in the things we do, but in the want of things that we want to do now. And lastly, God does promise a new world. One day, sin will not be with us. So sin might be present now, but one day sin will not be present. It will not be in power and it will not be present. We'll be with God in, in a new kind of way, in a new world that the Bible calls the new heavens and earth, in the way that we were truly meant to be. And that's what we, our hopes are now. So now our hopes aren't just in getting a better job or buying a cool house or having a good pension. Now our hopes are hugely, massively cosmic and it's this new world being made new. Now, none of what we talked about with respect to faith assumes perfection. We're never going to be, never going to be perfect in our knowledge, never going to be perfect in what we feel, never going to be perfect in what we, what we do. And this is, again, why there is a need for a life of repentance, a life of change. See, faith is a one-time thing and also an ongoing act. It has to be both. Here's a visualization um, that might help because I'm a, a nerd when it comes to graphs. Actually, I used this the other day with Stephen. Um, so I'm going to subject Stephen to it again. Uh, so the, this is, if you come to faith, this is what it looks like. You realize you are very needy. You realize, I actually don't have my stuff together as much as I'd like to. And then you also hear about how great God is. God's actually, it's a pretty good deal. In fact, it sounds a little bit too good to be true. It's, I don't know. It almost sounds too good. God sounds like he loves me a lot for reasons that I don't even understand beyond even what I can perform for him. And yeah, that's true. That's what it is. And the thing that makes up that gap between how low we are and how high God is, is the cross. That's what brings us near. Hebrews says, let us draw near. How do we do that? Through what Jesus has done through the cross. And that, that's what gives us the assurance of faith. So that's like, this is like the beginning of the Christian life. But time goes on and you realize, wow, I thought I was lame. I'm like really lame. Like I don't... I, I don't think I care about God nearly as much as I should. And maybe even the times when I do the things that are good, I'm doing kind of like that I'll be seen as good or other people will see me as good or um, all those kinds of things. We realize actually we're way more needy than we thought. Or maybe we, circumstances come in our lives that we really can't deal with. We're way more needy than we thought. And then the more we learn about God in the Bible, um, through prayer, through being with his people, we realize God is like way better than I thought. I thought he was good. He's like, Gooder than good. He's like, we need to invent an adjective, a superlative in order for it to work. And what makes up that gap? That just leaves more room for what happened at the cross to be put on display. How do we draw near when we're so far away? I thought I was needy. No, even more needy. And God is even more great. We don't try and make it up by being good. We praise God for what he's already done and bring us near to him. And we go on and it happens again. And if, if, there, if the TV was you know, like three times the size, we can keep on going on as, as life goes on. This is what maturity looks like, realizing how lame you are and how great God is. That's what maturity looks like. There's no perfection in there. Faith is a way of living, a life of change, of trusting Jesus over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And when Jesus was on that cross, he was bleeding out. His heart stopped so that yours might begin. And when I'm talking about heart, I'm talking about... Um, 
hardcore band called Thrice has a great lyric. It says, the beat beneath the blood, like the, the beating that goes on beneath the beating of your heart. Like what gives you life in this world? That's what your heart is all about. That's the thing that Jesus has jump-started, has restarted for you. That gives you meaning. That gives you everything that gets you up in the morning, everything that uh, gives you joy in this life. Everything becomes new. It's like getting a new pair of glasses and seeing the world new. Or it's like um, not being able to see and now being able to see. And this is how much Jesus loves you. With his head, his heart, and his hands, he gave them up so our head and our heart and our hands might be made whole. No other person, no other thing, no other system, no other thought, no other belief is going to love you in the way that Jesus does. Nothing else can promise this, and nothing else can deliver and come through on these kinds of promises. This is how much you matter to God. We settle for so much less when we settle for anything other than God. So much less. Let's not settle for anything less than who God is. Jesus, we thank you for how you love us. We thank you that you've given us more than what we deserve. And even the small amount that we know uh, is really just a small little microcosm of what you've really done in our, in our lives. And not just us individually. Lord, you're creating a people. And we get to be part of that people who get to be a part of somehow reigniting this world, re-kind of jump-starting this world not in the images that we're going to create for ourselves, but in the image um, that you, the plan that you have set for yourself. So God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, when it comes to faith, all of us, Christians, people who aren't Christians, people who hate Jesus, people who love Jesus, and everything in between, we all have problems with faith. All of us live with a lack of belief. All of us live with a lack of faith. Wherever we are in our faith, Wherever we are in, in, in our journey before you, we ask for you to just keep us on that path, not just a little bit forward. Lord, you call us to walk. You don't call us to run. You don't call us to sprint. You call us to walk. So pray that slow moving over time, we would get to see how glorious you are, how much you love us, and how you created this world as a theater to experience your love. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Um, we have some. Oh, let me bring this up here. We have some more questions. Some of which are related. Some of which are not related at all. They're just random questions. This is kind of like a bit of a cleanup episode. How are we going to get all the things in? And we won't get all the things in. But yes, I'll have some of the. Oh, very loud. Um, some of the questions we've had through. How do we know if we are saved? Yes. Um, well, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. That's, that's, that's what belief is. That's what being saved is. Um, and basically, we just talked about those three things. It doesn't mean you need to be perfect in them. just need to be kind of walking in them. Uh, the Bible is also quite clear on how we're saved, not through our faith, not through our belief, not through our power of doing anything, but through what God has done already in us and for us, which is saved by grace alone, is what that might be about. Um, so the, it's not about having belief in our faith, but having belief in God. That actually matters. So there's a lot more to be said to be said on that. There's a few points. Yes. Um, why do Christians struggle with keeping the faith and doing what they've already learned? We're horrible at being. Uh, Christianity is a great thing to be bad at, um, and a horrible thing to be good to be perfect at. Because you'll never be perfect, and we're really good at not being perfect. At least Christianity can be honest with that. And it's really this thing. I mean, that's that's life. So that just means throughout the rest of your life, you you might get better at some things. But generally, you're not, and that's all right. So we're not perfect. Yeah. 
When I share my faith, I feel like I sound really hollow and weird. How can I share my faith in an organic way that doesn't make people feel uncomfortable? Yes, we Christians are already weird enough. Let's not make it worse on ourselves, right? Um, uh, well, I think uh, maybe you might feel weird, but that might be, be you talking about your faith that feels weird. Not, maybe not everybody experiences that. That is actually something, if you want to get normal and honest about it, you can say, hey, when I talked about Jesus, is that like really weird for you? And maybe the person will be super like, polite, like, no, no, that was great. Or they might be like, no, it's fine. Um, you can actually ask somebody about that. Uh, or the other thing is, um, what uh, I think if you if if one gets anxious about like evangelism, if you're a Christian, you're like I need to always be talking about my faith, and you're like I don't know how to, uh, you like pull the pin on the gospel grenade and you throw it and you run away. Um, that gets really weird. That's weird. Don't do that. Um, if you live your life as God's called you to, and which means around all sorts of people, people who are believers and people who aren't and then you're able to talk about your life in a way that's very normal, then you don't have to worry about the grenade. And the way to really do that is to listen, to listen well. Not so much actually about the words you say. You don't want to be like a salesman that comes to your door and just says, goes through the script. You're like, oh, this is horrible. How can I say no and close the door on this person? You want to listen to them. And when it makes sense for you to talk about what works in your life as opposed to maybe what other people believe or whatever, um, then you can share about that. That makes it a little bit more organic. And you also, you don't have to be really super anxious about it. We can pray about it. And pray that when the Holy Spirit gives us opportunities to talk, pray that we would have the boldness to do that. Thanks for that. Um, I've got two questions about um, what we actually do at Redeemer. Yeah? yeah? Sorry. I'll say. Okay. Um, sorry, you look like you're about to say something. Can I ask the questions? Yes. Great. I'm going to ask the questions. Um, why does Redeemer not have more traditional aspects of their service from time to time? So singing classical hymns or following liturgy or holding a full communion service? Yes, that is a good question. Um, there were also, it was interesting, um, and I have another question on Ask as well that we'll get to. Um, there, it was straight, I don't, um, there, there was a good amount of questions about, um, around like how we do things on Sundays specifically, um, which is, those are great questions to ask. And you may not know it, but behind the scenes, there's actually like um, a thought out plan on what we do, which might show maybe the efficacy of how that plan actually gets worked out. But uh, just, I, I did make a slide knowing this question was going to be asked ahead of time. Um, oh, Q&A, we should have that one up. Cool. So every Sunday, we walk through this story that actually reflects the Bible story that we just talked about. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Uh, just kind of briefly. Uh, in the very beginning, 10 o'clock, I know 10.30 is when we start singing. We actually, worship starts at 10 is when we start worshiping. And part of that is enjoying the uh, chats with each other, coffee, tea, etc. That's part of worship. And so worship begins at 10 o'clock. Uh, that is part of this um, uh, enjoying the creation that God's given us. And then we also, we generally have one song in the beginning that talks about that. We sang, um, Behold Our God, like, oh, isn't he great? Isn't he amazing? Like, behold, he's awesome. And then very quickly, we go into confession, which is the fall aspect. We say, God is amazing. We, not so much. So here's an opportunity, at least once a week, for us to corporately, as a people, say, oh, God, we're sorry. Please, will you continue that work of renewal in our hearts? And then as we hear uh, the Bible and hear um, from the Bible, that's that that's process of redemption getting worked out. And after we hear about that, then we sing as a response to that story of redemption. And that's where that um, new creation is. Like, this is our new hope that we get to sing about. And we're, we will about to sing uh, 
in a bit here. This is also when we take communion, which we aren't doing this week. Um, so someone mentioned something about a communion um, service. We have, uh, outside of these three weeks, we have, we have every single Sunday is a communion service for Redeemer. We, we do that all the time. Um, so uh, and why, would, why don't we have more traditional elements? Um, well, mostly because we think a church ought to reflect the people who we are. I wouldn't say Trollton is a very traditional community. If we were in a traditional community, especially one that was maybe more Catholic and Lutheran, we would be different and have like very kind of maybe old school things. But that's just not the community that we're in. So uh, that's a reason for those things. Yeah. Any other? Yeah. yeah so kind of following up with that, um, saying Redeemer doesn't tend to use the Lord's Prayer and other traditional words when worshiping. We also never share the grace with one another. Is there a reason for this? is um, uh, how, how Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount section. Um, sharing the grace is a section normally in, in a part of a service where you say, like, grace to you or peace be with you, depending on your tradition. Um, generally, that's coffee time is a lot of that grace sharing. Post-service stuff is a lot of that grace sharing. So we don't have a specific time in the service for that. Um, and we don't say the Lord's Prayer because we don't believe in it. No, I'm joking. Um, the, uh, <laughs> we just, there's only so many things we can program in amount of time. And I've already gone over, I mean, it's 11.45 now. I've already gone over what we normally do anyway. Um, so it's a great thing to do the Lord's Prayer every week. And maybe that's something we could do sometime in the future. But as for now, we don't do that. We do pray similar things to the Lord's Prayer every week together. Uh, but those are some reasons why we don't do that. Um, any other things I didn't? Was that? Yes, I'm going to read it out and hopefully answer it as it comes. In Romans 10, 14 to 15, Paul never answers his own question. Yes, okay. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they have, in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? Yes, Paul doesn't answer the question there in, our, uh, in English because the way that's constructed is uh, there's a certain way, a Greek kind of grammatical construction, and saying basically, this is how it works. That they, um, also, it's like um, if you were to say, uh, horrible weather outside, isn't it? You're not asking that person to say, oh, I don't know, is it horrible weather? You're saying like, oh, like, agree with me, this is horrible weather. This is basically Paul's way of saying, the only way people can hear is if someone preaches to them. And the only thing we preach is something out of the Bible. The only reason you can do that is if people are sent. That's the reason why someone like why we get so excited about the Griffiths going to Poet to Sea. This is why um, we Wilsons moved here. This is why all of you you don't have to move to another country to do that, by the way. Um, all of us are sent. In fact, in a bit, Liz will send all of us. So uh, yeah, that's he doesn't actually answer it because of the grammatical construction is supposed to be assumed in the question asking itself. I can chat more about that because I won't go too 